This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to your word, would you guide us and instruct us? Would you help us, whether we are children or parents or grandparents or friends of those, and we're not parents ourselves, to parent in a way that honors you, that reflects you to our children? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Laura Ingalls Wilder was born in 1867 in Wisconsin. (coughs) And then over the course of her childhood, she moved with her family to Kansas and then South Dakota. She has written about her life in a series of books called The Little House Collection, which I personally highly recommend. But in one of them, she's in a town called DeSmit, South Dakota, and it's entitled Little Town on the Prairie. And in there, her school gets a new teacher. And her teacher opens up the school year with these words. She smiles and says, now we're all ready to begin the school term. And we're all going to make it a success and do our best, aren't we? You must not look upon me as a taskmistress, but as a friend. We're going to be the very best of friends, I'm sure. None of us will ever be unkind or selfish, will we? I'm sure that none of you will ever be unruly, so there'll never need to be any thought of punishments here in our happy school. We shall all be friends together and love and help each other. Well, you don't have to have read the book to know what happens next. Soon, the boys were trying to find how far they could go before she would make them behave. However, to their shock, she did nothing but smile at them and ask them to be quieter. As days went on, the noise grew steadily, but she only kept asking them to be quiet. As the days became weeks, it became so bad that one day she rapped on her desk real loud, and when they finally got quiet, she proceeded to tell them she was sure they all meant to be good. She continued that she was only going to rule by love, though, not fear or punishment. At that point, students stopped even trying to do their schoolwork, and the school slowly descended into a chaos with laughter, banging of books, throwing a paper, and running around. In stark contrast to that lack of discipline is parents and teachers who only work by fear and punishment. Some of you may remember Danny McClung. He worked at the barbershop across the street here, and he told me many times of his grandfather, who was a pastor, who would beat his father. I've known others to live in the complete horror and fear of an abusive parent, that they're always walking on eggshells because at any moment they might go off over the slightest little thing. And mixed between those two extremes are apathetic and uncaring parents who oscillate between doing nothing to blowing up and then doing nothing all over again. Well, last week we saw God's commands to children to obey and honor their parents. Yet God also commands parents to act in a certain way. The word here used in Ephesians 6 for fathers is literally fathers. And yet, When you look at the same word in Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about Moses and it says his, and it uses the word and is clearly referring to parents. Thus, while I believe the emphasis is on the father 
and that there's a primary role given to the father. I think these commands apply to both parents. So today, we're going to look broadly at parents. In the future, we'll look uniquely at mothers and fathers. But here the commands are three. Don't provoke your children to anger. Nourish them through discipline, and then nourish them through instruction. As I said, as I started, we're not going to look at all of this today. We're going to kind of dip our toe in, take a break for most of December, and then come back. But today, I want us to begin by looking at first principles, wisdom, and commands. This should be on your bullets and on the back. Second, avoiding provoking anger. And third, the goal of discipline. But the first one, Principles, wisdom, and commands. And whenever we begin talking about something like parenting, we need to realize that the Bible doesn't prescribe a certain system or method of parenting. You can read some Christians and they say, this is the way to parent. And they often are drawing from many good Christian principles and things that should be said. But they are just that, principles. You may personally in your parenting find a certain method or approach to be helpful But you have to realize no approach can handle everything. Wisdom is going to be needed. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to parenting. And another family, even in our church, may fulfill those same principles, but by doing it differently. That's why I'm going to give some broad principles. How it plays out in practice will vary. In fact, it should most often vary even in your own home. You may have one child who is maniacal about everything in their room being exactly just right. You never have to tell them to clean, but rather you have to tell them, you know, it's all right if your sister didn't put it exactly on the right spot on your dresser. Your other child doesn't know what the word clean means. The house is their laundry basket, and they don't know if something's out of place because there's no place for anything in their bedroom. And how are you going to instruct those two different children on cleaning and discipline? And what are you going to do when they don't clean? Well, it should look very different for the two of them. Or you have one child that is super sensitive. They're walking by, they barely bump you, and they're in tears. Mommy, I'm so sorry. The other child, you go in their room, see crumbs all over their bed and chocolate on their lips, and you go, did you eat a cookie? And they go, cookies? Are there cookies in the house? Well, how you're going to approach child A and child B is going to be very different. You're going to use God's word. You're going to use principles, but you have to realize it's going to need to vary. And relatedly, we must again state these are principles in God's word for parenting, not promises. You can parent perfectly, I put that in quotes, but that's no guarantee a child will turn out the way they should. Yes, Proverbs 22, 6 says... Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. However, that is generally true wisdom. It's not a promise that will always happen. Even Jesus, though he wasn't a parent, he had 12 disciples and one of them completely left. And at his most important moment, 11 of them fled. So, does that mean, well, it doesn't really matter. Children are going to turn out however they want. Well, no. God does tell us, normally, if you train them up in the way they should go, then they won't depart from it. That is generally true. So, we need to follow God's word, and we need to pray. In all this, we have to be very careful to avoid the human tendency to pendulum swings. And what I mean by that is our 
overreactions to what we've seen before. A girl dates a guy who is always joking, always laughing, can never be serious. They break up and, sure enough, the next boyfriend, super serious. Always thinks about everything, never can crack, crack a joke. It's one swing to the other to the next. A team is struggling because their coach doesn't know anything about defense. So he gets fired and what do they go hire? A defensive coach who doesn't know anything about offense. And they just swing from one extreme to the other. And in our culture, the pendulum is very far on being overly permissive. That we don't tell children much of what to do and we can swing to the other extreme. And Well, my children are going to obey. They're not going to be like those wild kids out there. And we need to parent not by being reactionary, but by being reflective. What does God's word tell us to do? And if at times that looks like our culture, then great. But if times where it's not, then we need to follow that too. So don't live ref reflecting or reacting to our culture, but reflect on God's word, his world, and the unique situations and times and place he's given you and your children. With that in mind, let's turn to the first command God gives parents. Don't provoke anger. And here it's interesting. The first command given to parents is don't provoke your children to anger. You know, Colossians 3.21 gives similar instructions. And the idea behind both is not to embitter, exasperate, or drive our children to resentment. It's that idea that in our parenting, our children, the way we parent, can cause them to feel crushed. They can feel broken. They can then be bitter. And we really miss how countercultural this is because of our modern views of parenting. I already know this, but broadly speaking, parents today bend over backwards to make their children happy. Oh, Dudley Dumpkins, you're upset that you only got 42 presents? Uh, that, that's because we're going to get you two more on the way to the zoo. Heaven forbid that you be upset about anything that happens. And notice the command is not, don't let your children be upset with your parenting. That's not what it said. It said, do not provoke them to anger. Right before this, children are commanded to obey, and surely there are going to be many times they do not like what they are told to do. That is just fine. The command is don't provoke them to anger. But in contrast to our child-pleasing culture, Commentators let us know that in Paul's day, a Roman father had absolute authority over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his own fields with chains. He could take the law into his own hands. From the law was his own hand, sorry, and he could punish as, his life, as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his own child. This could happen even at birth because often when a child was born, they would present it to the father and the father could choose, we're keeping this child or we're not. And sadly, too often children with physical deformities or girls were then abandoned and not raised. And in that culture, Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger. They would be shocked. What? Dads can do whatever they want. And he's saying, no. You have obligations to your children. You have things that you need to do to honor God. So with that, let me give 10 ways we can exasperate our children. First, we exasperate them when we give them expectations beyond their abilities. 
Your three-year-old cannot fold laundry like a 13-year-old. You shouldn't expect the same level of neatness from them that you do for the other. Second, we exasperate them when we nag and harass them about what we've told them to do. Now, I'm not saying you remind them or you ever tell them something to do, but imagine if your boss came by and five times every hour said, Have you done this yet? Have you done this yet? Have you done this yet? You would be a little provoked. Leave me alone. I know what I need to do. And sometimes parents just go around nagging their children over and over and over and exasperate them by reminding them over and over. Third, we provoke them when we expect them to dress or act in a, act in a way that is countercultural but is not a moral issue. What I mean by this is I have a friend who grew up in South Africa and he moved here when he was about 10 years old. He got to know some people and he was invited over to a swim party. Well, he showed up in the appropriate swimsuit for a 10-year-old boy, a yellow banana-looking Speedo swimsuit. He quickly realized as he came out that uh, this is not the way boys in the United States wear swimsuits. Well, now his mom could have given a nice lecture about stewardship, and you have a swimsuit that works just fine. There's nothing wrong with that swimsuit. It's a cultural issue. And yet, it would have been highly embarrassing for him until they got an American-style swimsuit. It would have made him hate to be with friends. It would have been unnecessarily provoking. And so if it's an issue that's part of a culture that's not moral, it's important, not moral, then we shouldn't force our children to do things that's going to embarrass them. Now, there are things that they aren't going to like. They might have different views of modesty than we do, but that is a moral issue. What I'm talking about is forcing them to act or dress in a way that really doesn't matter. It's just cultural. Well, fourth, we provoke our children when we publicly shame or discipline them. In future, we'll talk about the need for discipline. That needs to happen. But I don't need to correct them in front of everyone else. I can say, hey, let's go to the bathroom. Hey, you need to go to your bedroom so I can talk to you about this. Now, in all of this, there's wisdom. There's times where you have to do something right then and there. But to publicly discipline them and shame them is to make them be embarrassed and long-term perhaps provoke them. Fifth, we exasperate our children if they can never please us. They score three goals, and after the game you say, why'd you miss that fourth one? They come home with a 95, and you go, well, these other five points are pretty easy. Why, what were you thinking? Why'd you miss that? They paint you a picture, and you barely even notice. Oh, thanks, and you just kind of toss it to the side. Your parents hopefully can know, oh, when I do this, this makes Dad so happy. Not, nothing I do ever pleases Dad. Yes, we need to push our children to excellence in the Lord, but we recognize where they are and praise them for their attempts. Six, we exasperate them when we overprotect them beyond reasonable standards. Now, this is very cultural time and place. 30 years ago, when I was growing up, almost no children wore a bicycle helmet. Today, it's the expectation that every child's going to wear a bicycle helmet. So, what is right protection? What is overprotection? Well, that's going to change. But if you're still telling your 18 year old you can't play basketball in the front yard, cars go down the street you're probably overprotecting them. Yes, the 18-month-year-old shouldn't play in the front yard because they'll go chasing that ball right out there. 
But the 18-year-old is going to be highly frustrated if you keep saying, well, you shouldn't. <laughs> you have to let them grow up. They will become very resentful if you don't. Seventh, we exasperate our children when we compare them to siblings or friends. Why aren't you like your sister? She always does what we tell her right away. You know your friend Johnny Jones? He does what his mom says right away. And I even hear her comp- hear him complimenting his mom. I've never heard you compliment me on anything I do. Why aren't you more like your friends? Well, that makes our children exasperated, provoked, embittered. Every child is unique. And the only comparison we should have is between them and Christ. Not because we're trying to hold them to an unrealistic expectation, but because that's what God expects and requires of them. Eighth, we provoke them when we don't heed Ephesians 4.26 and we let the sun go down on their and our anger. If they regularly go to bed, having left an unresolved conflict with you, they will sit there in bed and stew, making a horrible pot of bitterness against parents. Now Romans 12.18 does say, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You can do everything you want and they're still upset with you. That's not what I'm talking about. It's that if night by night they go off after a big conflict, And the last thing they see is you with an angry face at them, not you with a loving face towards them. You know, in those moments, follow up. You can go in their room and say, look, I I need to apologize for whatever you did wrong. And then say, and I know you and I probably aren't going to agree on this, but I want you to know that I am doing my best to do what's best for you. And let them leave you with thoughts of my parents' care though they may still strongly disagree, which is fine, but not with an angry red face at them. Ninth, we embitter our children when we betray their confidence. Now, it's one thing to share general facts about your family, about your children with others. It's another thing to have a child open up to you and then you go and tell others the specifics of what they shared with you. And then even worse, that person comes and brings that up in front of your children. They will no longer talk to you, and they will be quite angry that you shared personal aspects of their life. You know, the older you get, the more you need to ask, like you would with any adult, can I share this with so-and-so so I can get their advice and they can help pray with me for you? And friends and parents, be very, very cautious. If you've had that stuff shared with you, don't bring it up to the child. They won't think, oh, this is wonderful that they're praying for me. They will lose respect and confidence in their parents. Relatedly, there's no hard and fast rule, but we must be cautious what we share about our children on social media. I'm not here talking about predators, or that's a topic worthy of conversation, but that our children sometimes feel like they have no privacy. Now, you don't need their permission for every single family picture, but... The older they get, the more you should be willing to not take pictures of them that they think are embarrassing or that they don't want shared. Let them have some say in when they need personal life. It can be quite embarrassing when teenagers feel like pictures they don't like and information of their life is constantly being shared to the whole world and they have no control over it. 
Well, tenth and lastly in this section, we embitter our children if they always take lowest priority in our life. Yes, issues arise. Sometimes you get called into work. Sometimes things happen outside of your control that you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do anything with you. I have to go take care of this. Yet to make statements of activities that you're going to do and to regularly give them up for other things, for friends, other friends, a job, gives the impression that they just don't really matter to you. I had a good friend in Ohio. He was much older than me. And he would often tell me about when he first was a pastor. He was an associate pastor at a church. And the pastor, the senior pastor, always made it, and that's the key, always made it to every person when they were in the hospital. Always went to visit people when they were in crisis. And the senior pastor's child became quite embittered. He would tell of time after time that the van was loaded, or probably back then, station wagon was loaded, ready to go fishing. A call would come, dad would walk in in fishing gear, come out in a suit and say, sorry, we can't go today. Now, of course, there are emergencies, but many of those situations were things that any other pastor, any other church member could go over and visit that person and say, hey, I know you're here, I want to come visit you. But time and again, this pastor told his children no to the neglect of them. So yes, at times make sacrifices, but at other times say, I'd love to do that. Can I be with you tomorrow? Because right now, I'm with my children. Relatedly, turn the TV off, put your phone on silent, and be with them. You don't have to go to too many restaurants to see family sitting there with mom and dad on their phone more than the children are. Enjoy the times that you're with them. Let them know that after God, after your spouse, they are your greatest priority and joy. In contrast to all this, rather than exasperate them, seek to bring joy to your children. To build fond memories that don't lead to exasperation, but enjoyment. Yet tragically, many do not enjoy their children. Often, though not always, the reason stems from a failure to follow Proverbs 29.17. Proverbs 29.17 says, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. The contrast to that is, when you don't discipline your son, he's not a delight. No one enjoys being around children when they're constantly complaining, constantly whining, constantly disobeying. And yet we can't enjoy them if they're not disciplined. And that leads to our next section, Nourish Through Discipline. Our third and last section for today, Nourish Through Discipline. Now, I entitled this section Nourish Through Discipline because there's one Greek word for bring them up. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Bring them up is one word. It's the same word used back in Ephesians 5.29. Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. That's the same word. We are to nourish our children. What do we do to nourish our bodies? Well, if you're like me, the slightest slightest hint of sickness and I'm going to bed early, I'm taking medicine, I'm doing everything I can to make my body better. The same type of nourishment I give to my body, I should be giving to the rearing of my children. 
even greater. Right after that it says, as Christ, in verse 30, nourishes and cherishes the church. Christ didn't just sit by, but rather, out of his deep love and concern for the church, it caused him to give his life for the church. So parents should seek to build up, raise up, to parent their children with such care and concern. In the 1600s, one commentator wrote, Let them be fondly cherished. Deal gently with them. I bring someone up who's almost four, well, four centuries ago, because we can tend to go, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of modern parenting. Nourish them. He means pamper them. No. If God's word calls us to nourish them, that's what we should do. You know, our homes should be known on some level for gentleness. You know, I think we can respond, this culture, they're a bunch of snowflakes, ninnies. They need safe spaces. My kids aren't going to be like that. They're going to be tough. They're going to know how to handle the world. Well, yes, at times they should learn those things. But the underlying word is nourish your children. Our home should be aromas of grace, respect, encouragement, love. And yet the text doesn't stop there. It gives two ways to nourish. Through discipline and instruction. There's so much to say that we're just going to dip our toe into discipline and then after Christmas dive more in this. But to begin, we really have to define what does discipline mean? And it's really interesting. If I use the word discipline in two different contexts, people would have radically different connotations from it. When I use the word discipline in regards to parenting, most people today think, well, that's barbaric. That's cruel. That's not how you should parent. But if I use the word discipline in regards to a sports team or a military squadron, they go, that's wonderful. That's what we need. We're not going to win if we don't have a disciplined team. We're not going to be effective in war if we don't have a disciplined squadron. And yet the idea of discipline is both. Discipline has both connotations. The connotations of creating a unit that's controlled and organized and disciplined. And when it's not that way, correcting and talking to them and at times punishing. Discipline is a really rich, rich word, not just one aspect. So discipline has a formative aspect in which we're modeling to our children, explaining to them, teaching, showing our children how to live for God. And discipline should have a corrective aspect in which they're not doing that, where we're reproving them, we're counseling them, and we're punishing them. Thus, Contrary to Laura Ingalls Wilder, teacher that I mentioned in the introduction, it's not loving to never give discipline. That's what she thought. I'm going to be a loving teacher. I'm never going to have discipline. But that wasn't loving at all. The school that, the chaos that descended in that school was not loving those children. Rather, as we had read for us earlier, Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord reproves or disciplines him whom he loves, a father in whom he delights. You can't be a better parent than God. And God reproves and disciplines, and so should we. In other words, discipline does not and should not only occur when the child disobeys. A disciplined parenting should be going on well before anything punitive occurs. Again, just like that good squadron leader or that good coach the faithful and loving parent provides structure and boundaries, i.e. discipline. 
since it leads to the flourishing of those under them. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now notice it had two things, the rod and reproof. Now a lot of times when you talk to Christians about parenting, they have one mindset. Well, they don't do that, spanking. They don't do that, spanking. Every solution to a problem is you spank them. The other side is, well, no, no, you should never spank your child. And we're going to talk more about that in a few weeks. But here we see that the biblical idea is both. Reproof. You should be talking to your children. As we said, there should be much formation before. And then when there's been disobedience, after conversations, then at times there should be the use of the rod, meaning a spanking. Now I need to pause and give a slight digression, or perhaps more accurately, a slight explanation, because there's a major unstated assumption that sends parents going in different directions. And that is, what are your basic assumptions about God and about humans? Now you might think, well, this is a really odd thing to bring into this topic. I mean, we're talking about parenting. What in the world does that have to do with this? And yet, sadly, many Christians have kind of split their lives up into their doctrinal and church beliefs and their practical and how they really live beliefs. At church, they confess, we're all sinners. But in the home, they confess, really the problem is they're uneducated, unloved, and undeveloped. Yet if we come to grips with who we really are, what we saw about our human nature in Ephesians 2, 1-3, then we'll see that's not just true when we're in church. That's true for all of life. Now, I'm not going to re-give that whole sermon, but let's just turn there real quick and see what it says about all humans since the fall of Adam. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The issue is that we're all born as sinners, meaning we don't joyfully submit to God and those he's put in authority over us. Notice I didn't say that we're sinners, meaning we do bad things. You know, a lot of times people think that's what sinners mean. Well, you're a sinner because you've sinned. Well, that's not what the Bible's saying. That's saying your actions then lead to a description. The Bible is saying you sin because you're a sinner. Your nature leads to your actions. The Bible is saying all of us are sinners. And Jesus affirmed this. Luke 18, you may remember a young man came up to him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded, Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Jesus is not in line with our culture that assumes we're all basically good people. Jesus says there's no one good but God alone. Now to be clear, when the Bible says we are sinners, it doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be and we never do anything good. 
nor does it mean that we're all equally bad. The point is that no part of our humanity has been left untouched by the stain of sin. The stain that makes all of us think, I'm more important than the person next to me. That what I want is what I'm going to seek. What I'm going to go after. Now I've mentioned this a few times, but this plays out in so many obvious ways. I've mentioned before the bag of sugar I bought. And on the top of the bag of sugar it said, do not look at the bottom. Now you don't have to be a social scientist. You don't have to be some great student of humans to know why did they write, do not look at the bottom. Because they knew every single person would go, why? Why do we all know that we all want to do the opposite of what we're told, and yet we then turn around and go, but we're all basically good. We don't like to do what we're told. And our desire to not obey those in authority ultimately comes from a desire not to obey God. And yet many functionally live the way that the teacher did in the Laura Ingalls Wilder story. That we're all good children. That we all want to do what's right. Well, it didn't work in the 1880s or the 1980s. And it doesn't work today because it's not true. And so I bring this all up because what your child needs is not better information. They don't need more love. They don't need more positive affirmation. Those are the things that aren't going to lead to ultimate change. The Bible teaches a radically different perspective of our nature. And that should affect not just what we say when we're in Sunday school or at church. That should affect even the way we parent in our homes. We are sinners and we need to have our life reoriented to God. So to begin this aspect of discipline, let's look at the goal of our discipline. Remember, I don't just mean punishment. And the goal is to lead our children to a life that honors God. And I use that word lead specifically because as the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can lead children to honor and love God, but they have to choose. You have a role, and God does. And while he doesn't always bring the children of Christians to faith, he often works through the effort of Christian parents to bring their children to honor him. Now, this immediately sets our goals to be very different in the way we parent. Because first, notice, I didn't say the goal of Christian parents is to get their children to obey The goal is to lead them to honor God. You know, as we saw last week, honoring God is an important, it's an essential part of honoring God. Yet you can honor God with purely external obedience, and you you can do purely external obedience and not truly honor God. Also, the goal is not merely to raise children who are good citizens, though we hope they are. The goal is not merely to lead children to make a profession of faith, though we hope they do. I knew a parent in Ohio who regretfully said to me, he said in deep regret, I parented my children till they were baptized and then I considered my job to be done. And in deep regret, he said, you know, I wish I could go back and do it all over because really that's when it was just beginning to show them what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ. The goal of a Christian parent is not to raise your children to be top scholars 
or athletes. Now, no one is going to say that's their goal, but where we put our time, our money, and our efforts show what truly value, that we truly value. You know, a friend once pointed out, there's a 0.0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. It's pretty small. There's a 100% chance that your child will stand before God. You know, which one ultimately matters? The goal of parenting is not to give your children all the various experiences in the world so they can learn what they enjoy. Yes, have fun with your children. Help them enjoy life. Yet sadly, many Christian children can rattle off all the places they've gone to. They can tell you all the things they've done, all the things they have, and they can maybe get out one or two Bible verses. They have a very cursory understanding of what it means to know God and follow Him. The goal of the universe and the goal for every person is to glorify God. Is your parenting reflecting that? If so, then we nurture, teach, and shape them towards a life that honors God. You know, that's what we want for them is to know and love God. Now, there are things that I love that it's okay if my children don't love. I love this little cult down in College Station, Texas A&M. They don't have to join the cult. They want to join another one, that's fine. I love God, and they will give an account for whether they do that one day as well. You know, lastly, the goal is not for your children to be your best friend. You know, sadly, the way many parents parent, it seems like they live and die based on whether their children approve of what they do. You have a much greater role than being their friend. You're their parent. That is much greater value than being their friend could ever be. Some of you may have heard as many years ago, but in 1977, Rick Hoyt was 15 years old. He was in a wheelchair with cerebral palsy, and a school student at his school had been in an accident and was paralyzed. And he asked his dad, hey, would you run with me in the race for this kid so that he would know once you have a disability, your life isn't over? After the race, Rick said to his dad, dad, when we're running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. Rick's dad then dedicated his life to running. Before they stopped a few years ago, they completed 1,130 events, including 72 marathons and six triathlons. Yeah, I wouldn't have made it that far. Now, stories like the Hoyts are inspirational because really they tie into a much better story. This true story of our Father in Heaven who did so much more than run in some races for us. He sent his only son to die for our sins, to rise again so that we might be forgiven, made new, and adopted into his family. Now we have the great privilege of being an example of that father to the children that he puts under our care. So may we give our best so that they might know the pleasure of the Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the children you give us. Would we be good stewards of them? Lord, they are ultimately not ours, they're yours. And so would you give us the grace, the wisdom, to know how to lead them 
to you. And Lord, we know we can't do that. So we beg and pray, would you stir their hearts that they would know the joy of knowing you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.